This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI Senior Writer Al Castle. Going to be joined in a moment by my co-host, fellow senior writer, Dan Murphy. We've got a lot of talk about this week. Certainly a big, big uh, week in news uh, as far as wrestling is concerned with Money in the Bank this past Sunday, uh, where we had three different world champions uh, in one night, all of them former members of The Shield. We talk about that. We talk about uh, what uh, Dean Ambrose's championship win means both for his career, possibly the career of Roman Reigns, the brand split. Uh, so lots of, of ramifications, lots of fallout from Money in the Bank. We talk about uh, all of it. Uh, plus, we talk a bit about uh, the PWI 500 through the lens of Money in the Bank and uh, kind of down to the wire and the evaluation period, how some of these changes uh, factor into the PWI 500. And we're also going to talk a bit about what we've put together in the PWI 500 says about the wrestling scene today. Uh, everything from uh, Japan to Mexico to the UK wrestling scene, the indie scene, uh, a pretty comprehensive look at uh, the wrestling landscape as we put together uh, what is probably our biggest issue of the year, the PWI 500, uh, coming out later this year. Um, plus, after that, uh, stick around for a really fun interview with the voice of Ring of Honor, Kevin Kelly. They got a big show coming up this Friday night, Best in the World. Uh, headlined by Jay Lethal defending the ROH title versus uh, Jay Briscoe. Uh, we talk a lot about Jay Lethal and, and where he might turn up in the PWI 500, uh, plus some other top Ring of Honor talents. Uh, and we also, of course, go into Kevin's days in WWE uh, during the Attitude uh, movement and also, uh, you know, his memories of, of WWE, good, bad, and uh, an interesting discussion on what he thinks about the emphasis placed on the appearance of wrestling uh, announcers in kind of the era of, of the Byron Saxtons uh, of the world. And he had some pretty strong opinions on that. So uh, definitely stick around for that. Uh, for now, let me tell you a bit about Pro Wrestling Illustrated in its 37th year. I'm holding it in my hand right now the latest issue, the... What is this, the August issue, I believe? Yes, August 2016. It's got uh, Roman Reigns on the cover holding the championship uh, aloft. Better days uh, at the time for Roman Reigns. Uh, and I should mention uh, the the uh, discussion I've got coming up with uh, Dan Murphy uh, where we talk about money in the bank. One thing we don't talk about is Roman Reigns' suspension, which uh, the, the news of which broke literally minutes, maybe an hour after we had uh, our conversation. So we didn't get into it. Uh, certainly something we'll talk about uh, in, in coming weeks and probably would kind of uh, uh, change the discussion some if we knew then what we know now. Uh, but as I said, better times for Roman Reigns here on the cover of the August issue of PWI. Um, it is our WrestleMania coverage. And uh, Dan uh, put together, as always, the real winners and losers, uh, losers of WrestleMania. I've got my hot seat interview with uh, now former uh, TNA heavyweight champion Drew Galloway. Uh, plus, we get a feature on the WWE Hall of Fame. We've got the PWI poll where we ask uh, subscribers the 50 hottest questions in pro wrestling. Uh, my column, Quick Counts, Dan's column, uh, Mike Bessler, of course, puts together uh, Before the Bell where uh, he reviews uh, uh, indie wrestlers, all kinds of stuff in here. Just flipping through it as I talk here. Uh, we got Ringside with Harry Burkett, another senior writer at PWI. Our rankings, we don't talk about that much here. Uh, on the podcast, but the rankings one of the the longest uh, standing features in PWI and uh, a lot of fun and so much more. Uh, if you're listening to this, you know what PWI is all about. So uh, definitely check out uh, the latest issue. Go to pwi-online.com. And uh, I always say what you should do is go ahead and subscribe. You do that, you get uh, half off or more from the cover price, uh, $3.33 per issue if uh, you go uh, for 12 issues. Full colors, 84 pages, 
for 37 years the most respected name in wrestling journalism. Uh, PWI-online.com is the place to go to subscribe. If you want it even faster and cheaper, get the digital edition uh, quicker to your inbox. Uh, check it out on your tablet, your phone, your computer. It looks great on all of them. Uh, or go ahead and have it sent to your home. Whatever you like, even if you want a, a single issue, you can pick that up at PWI-online.com. And you can listen to this, the PWI podcast, on uh, PWI-online.com. Uh, and if you want to go back on our archives, uh, check us out on iTunes. we got all our old episodes. We're about 53, 54 now. We've been doing this for about a year and a half. Uh, tons of fun guests uh, in the past. So check us out on iTunes. Drop us a line here, PWI podcast at outlook.com. And uh, follow PWI on social media, uh, at official PWI on Twitter. And uh, find us on Facebook as well. All right, Dan. So lots to talk about. Money in the Bank uh, this past Sunday, very newsworthy with uh, three different people, all former S.H.I.E.L.D. members, um, wearing the world heavyweight title. Raises a lot of questions. Um, now we know where they're going forward, triple threat match at uh, Battleground. Um, but but what does this mean? Or is this, is this an indication of them uh, investing in, in Dean Ambrose as a top guy? Is it an indication of maybe giving up on Roman Reigns? Uh, what do you make of all of it? No, I don't think it's a sign that they're giving up on Roman Reigns as much as people would like to interpret that being the case. Uh, Dean Ambrose is not a guy that they've really protected over the past couple of years. Uh, he's really been uh, pushed as, as a fan favorite, a very popular. He's been most popular in the PWI Achievement Awards for the past couple of years, uh, but he tends to lose the big matches. He, it doesn't look like he's a guy that they've been really protecting to make him the top guy. <clears throat> I think that right now he's just kind of a... Uh, a plot device, basically. He's the guy to come in, uh, keep the feud between the Shield interesting. Eventually, uh, Roman Reigns will get the belt back. Uh, this is kind of a nod to the fans. Hey, you supported this guy. You seem to like Dean Ambrose. Uh, we'll give him a short title reign in the Dolph Ziggler kind of category. Yeah. Uh, and then back to the mid-card you go. Uh, that's what I would expect. Now, if all of a sudden ratings take off and, and things change, they can always call an audible and, and maybe expand this title reign and go a little bit longer with it. But I think that this is just a way to kind of put a unique uh, feel to a three-way match with the Shield and, and put a, uh, Ambrose in the position of being the defending champion, which he's not been in before. So it freshens things up a little bit. But why not go with Ambrose? I mean, uh, it, it's such a rare commodity now to have a, a babyface champion who's actually over with fans, who he comes out and the fans cheer for. I mean, he's getting exactly the reaction that uh, a top babyface should be getting, um, and it's really something they haven't had in a while. I mean, if you think about their last uh, several top babyface acts, obviously Roman Reigns, and um, the thought was he was kind of the heir apparent to John Cena, who who dealt with a lot of what Roman Reigns is dealing with. You know, at least half the fans, if not more, are, are booing you. Now, we could debate whether that's fair or not. I don't think it is. Um, certainly not with, with John Cena. Uh, but, you know, do you go with the hot hand? D- Dean Ambrose, um, for better or for worse, and, and you know, we, he may not be our pick, and, and, I, and I think certainly he's flawed, uh, but the fans really take them. They, they really respond to him. Uh, and why not? I mean, if they're sort of in, in a, a mood to shake things up with the brand split and uh, having to create new top backs on top to fill out two different rosters, is it the, the craziest thing in the world to, to go with Dean Ambrose, not just as a transition champion, but maybe a long-term champion? The two reasons why not. Number one, he's not the guy. I mean, you know, it's not really use the Roman Reigns tagline or, you know, being the, the guy, but he... WWE has a, a model, a prototype of what they want in their champion. Uh, the look, the presence, the dynamic, the feel. Roman Reigns is all of that. And he, the only thing he's lacking is the charisma. And they figure that, you know, they can build charisma. Um, Dean Ambrose doesn't have any of those qualities. Uh, he's extremely small. Uh, he, he's not particularly in a promotion filled with, with bodybuilders and body beautifuls. He's just got a normal physique. Uh, you, you wouldn't look twice at them. You know, and it's just been, for better or for worse, the old WWE litmus test is, uh, does he catch your attention at the airport? Like, do you take a yeah. look and go, oh, who's that guy over there? No, not at all. I mean, Dean Ambrose just looks like, you know, he almost looks like 
you know, the fourth guy to show up at the arena for the show gets to wrestle tonight. I mean, that's, that's all it is. Um, now, that being said, I mean, that's just WWE's mentality. He's, he doesn't have that look. The, the other thing is the entire reason for Dean Ambrose's popularity is because he's been the challenger. And I think that what happens now is after the initial euphoria of, hey, our guy finally won, nobody expected this, then it's going to quickly become a backlash where you begin to realize all of the limitations that Ambrose has. He's great at promos. Uh, his matches are, at least his WWE matches, because he's, he showed a lot more uh, passion, a lot more um, versatility on the independence. But his, his matches are really pretty dull. They're pretty color-by-numbers, pretty generic. Even his promos, he may be the lunatic fringe, but there's nothing particularly lunatic about him. He's, he's a very PG, not, I mean, he doesn't hold the candle to a Steve Austin or anything like that. Um, so I think that now as, as a champion, those limitations and those weaknesses become amplified. And uh, I, I don't see them having the, uh, the wherewithal to stay with them with that uh, championship for long. I, I don't totally uh, agree with you. I agree with you on some of that, and, and he's far from, from my favorite uh, act. But I think he's a pretty good act, and you, you touched on charisma. I think he's got loads of it. It's a different kind of charisma um, that, that I think uh, a, a John Cena has or a Hulk Hogan had or Steve Austin or certainly The Rock. Um, but I think there's kind of a relatable quality to uh, Dean Ambrose. I think um, um, one of the reasons for the backlash for uh, Roman Reigns is that he is so kind of perfect looking. But you're right, though. I mean, and, Dean, you know, Ambrose Dean Ambrose is, is disheveled and in jeans and yeah. a T-shirt and his hair is all messed up. And, and uh, he looks again. like the kind of guy. He looks like the kind of guy you want to have a beer with. Yes, which is fine. But he's not the kind of guy that you want to buy an action figure of or a merchandise or a T-shirt. It's he's not that bigger than like Superman that appeals to kids and and the core audience of WWE for the past 40 years. But you touched on it. I mean, he's wrestler, uh, most popular wrestler of the year two years in a row. You know, I was at um, uh, Extreme Rules uh, several weeks back where he had something of a dud of a match with um, the uh, Chris Jericho and the crowd right. was still really crazy about him. I mean, there's there's definitely a real bond there. And again, I think he's, he's a flawed act. I think uh, WWE has squandered some of that charisma by making him kind of cartoonish at times, and he's done himself no favors in, in playing uh, into that. But just sort of a small example, I thought him on commentary last night for the, the main event of Raw, it, it it came through, you know, what the charisma is. And he, he's, he's a little weird, he's kind of funny, he's, he's offbeat. Uh, I'm not saying he is um, the next Steve Austin or even the next John Cena, but in kind of a transition time, where you're uh, in kind of this feeling out period, trying to find out who could be a top act. I don't know if it's the worst idea to stick with him for for a few months, um, you know, yeah. in, in the absence of, of much better options. And, and I'll give you one, one of my big takeaways from um, Money in the Bank, and I might be alone uh, on this one as well, you know, looking around who should be uh, the guy, uh, is it Roman Reigns, is it Seth Rollins, is it Dean Ambrose? My big takeaway watching John Cena versus uh, AJ Styles is it's John Cena. I mean, I'm, I'm still sort of perplexed that uh, having John Cena and now a, a relatively healthy John Cena on your roster, he's not, to me, he is the perennial world champion. He should be headlining your shows. He is still the top act. Um, you know, you think back to, to Hulkamania in the 80s and 90s, and the same thing with uh, Bruno San Martino uh, in the 70s and Bob Backlund. Um, you know, if you got an act who is really over and essentially in the prime of his career, I mean, in the ring, John Cena had the, the, the best year of his career last year. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe we get there now with, with the brand split because you don't need to have, you don't need to just choose one, you can have two, you can have one on either uh, side, but uh, for, for I, I think it's way premature to move John Cena into uh, the gatekeeper kind of position they've, they've been you know talking about for a while, and, and he held most of the last two years, not headlining anymore, but just below that. To me, this is a guy who still should be headlining every pay-per-view and every house show. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. And I, again, I'm not the world's biggest John Cena fan, although, I mean, he, he proves himself time and time again, and he's still kind of the, the guy to beat. You know, that's 
he's been the franchise guy for more than a decade, and uh, he's still the top draw, still the the, the mainstream celebrity, and, and, and his star keeps shining more and more. We talked the other day, we had our, our well, last week, we had our first call on the PWI 500 ranking, and uh, Stu Sack had to make a point as we started about the press conference in, in China, where yeah. all of a sudden John Cena speaks Mandarin Chinese. For I mean, that, three minutes, that, uninterrupted. Yeah, I mean, that that yeah. is... Uh, that just blew me away. I was so impressed, and um, you know, guys like that who work that hard uh, don't don't come uh, around all the time. So you're talking just a crazy work ethic, a company guy, and not 40 yet. Um, you know, yeah. to me, I, I, again, I, I I understand looking for the next guy, and they should be looking for the next guy. But I think they already have the guy, and they've they've had him for the better part of the last decade. And and I don't know that it's time to move on from him yet. And this is exactly why I don't like the uh, the brand split, uh, among uh, many other reasons. But this really kind of puts a, uh, it's a, the the start the straw that stirs the drink, I guess. It, if they do the brand split, well, they're doing the brand split. If they have separate champions with each brand, um, you know, you, you, presumably John Cena is either one or chasing for that other title. He'll be the top contender on one brand, and Roman Reigns or Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins will be on the other brand. Something, you know, that's the the thought. And, and to me, even if you put John Cena on the SmackDown brand and he holds that title, to me, he's the, he's the champion because he, you don't elevate a new star by separating your stars out. You elevate a new star by beating the current established stars. So yeah. people see him as, as better or in that level. What the brand split has always done is it moves the top stars away from each other so that they can only get to a certain level and then they can't face each other and they don't they, they don't elevate. The entire concept should be to create new stars, but it never works out that way. And I, I think that that's why I would also like to see Cena either as world champion or contending for it in that mix rather than segmented off uh, in a separate brand, as, as is likely to happen. Yeah, I'm I'm for the brand split. If it's I'm I'm for a well done brand brand split, and and I think uh, you're right that there's an issue with keeping stars apart from each other. But in the long term, if it's done right, there's a benefit to that, right? Because then you could deliver the dream match, which you you can't do now because everybody's just facing everybody every other night. You know, nothing feels special. Um, you, you touched on the uh, the 500. And uh, you know, not giving anything away, but but we did talk about it for the first time last week. Uh, and you know, I think a lot of, of, of sort of news coming out of it. Um, I think one of my big takeaways is how shallow, in some ways, the the pool is. That by number ten, we were talking about some names that you wouldn't think would be around number ten, and by number twenty, it's like it's amazing how sort of low you are. Um, but uh, I even think about, you know, the the last week's events, how much that changes things. You know, what does this mean for Dean Ambrose, that he is now a, a world champion? Um, o- Okada was a guy who uh, we were considering fairly high. Uh, he j- and, and I think one of the things that, that hurt him a little was dropping the IWGP title. He just won it back. Um, what does that mean? I mean, is it... We've talked about whether the time would come to have a, a, a Japanese a talent at number one. Could he be that number one? Um, uh, any thoughts on, on any of those? Well, the the official um, time period for the 500 is uh, it ends on June 30th. So uh, from July 1st of last year to June 30th of 2016 is the period we're looking at. And you're right, there was definitely that big drop off, and it wasn't even I wouldn't even say top 10 or top 20. That's after top five, like there's a significant yeah. drop where it's just like, wow, that these are the top five or six guys in the yeah. world. And it's not so much their talent. I mean, there's certainly ridiculously talented wrestlers out there. It's just they haven't been pushed in that capacity. Um, with WWE right now, you have your, your basically your, your Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, John Cena, um, and Dean Ambrose. That's, that's the top of the pack. And then, you know, from there huge fall off to like your Seamus's and your new days. And I mean, yeah. it, it's a fairly big drop. You've got your Owens and some others in there as well, but the, the step off from the main event is steep. TNA is even steeper because the guys at the main event level are, are barely at the main event level and they're not as active, which is a big criteria. Um, and, and there's a lot of parody in other promotions. You don't have as many like clear up and coming standout talents. You have a lot of guys who are, 
you know, say Bobby Fish, just to throw him out there from Ring of Honor. Fantastic wrestler. He can go with anybody. It's just that he hasn't been pushed at a level of a main event guy, you know, and, and that's what you're really seeing right now is you've got a very, very finite number of top tier guys, and then the drop off is, is pretty staggering. So, yeah, um, and, and with, with Okada winning the title and everything, I mean, we probably will have to revisit everyone that we've slotted so far and, and see, you know, if, if that's where they should stay in two weeks' time. It, it makes you wonder um, whether. It's time to uh, uh, reconsider criteria, or at least sort of reprioritize uh, criteria, right? Because um, the whenever we get heat every year about decisions that we make in the 500, we always have the, the kayfabe argument to fall back upon. You know, look at the win-loss record, that kind of thing. But that's harder and harder to uh, do. I feel like um, these days, in, in part because of this parity and you know, called 50-50 booking, even Stephen booking. Uh, it almost nobody really runs through their competition anymore, right? I mean, even guys who are uh, slotted near the top. Let's talk about Dean Ambrose, who you know we really haven't decided yet. I, mean, I think we've got uh, a slot, but it's a slot that we're going to have to reconsider now. Him, him being world champion. Right. Um, look at his win-loss record for for the last year, and and I imagine it, it's very unremarkable, unimpressive. Um, you know, house shows. Uh, tend to change things up some because it's a different formula for house shows where you're trying to uh, send fans home happy. But but he's a guy who you know couldn't win a match on, on TV or, or pay-per-view for the life of him for, for months. Yeah. Um, yep. And so it, it, it makes it... But the flip side of that is, clearly he is looked at as a, a... I mean, obviously now, but even before now, one of the very top guys. You know, is it time to get away from some of that? Is it, it you know, and and there are other things we look at. We know this was one of the discussions we we had last week. Stuff like influence, um, that kind of thing. It's sort of harder to quantify, but um, you feel it. You know, we had a discussion about John Cena, who who uh, I think has been in the top ten every year for the last eleven years, eleven or twelve years. Um, a, a remarkable record, but missed a ton of time. Um, in, in the last year, I think the most in any year since he kind of started this run. Um, I'm not even sure he even made, made event at a pay-per-view uh, during that time. But he's John Cena. You know, he's hosting the ESPY Awards. He's a regular host on the Today Show. Uh, you know, he, to, to uh, not slot him near the top of, of uh, a list of, the, of the, the best wrestlers in the business seems a little kind of disingenuous, though. No. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, I mean, if you look at, I know that there are a lot of people who look at this as a work rate list. and say, oh, how can you have this guy ranked at this level when this guy's so much a better worker? And it never has been, and, and but I wonder if, if, it, right. if it needs to be, or but at least more. Did, yeah. Even if we were able to do that, you look at work rate, and then what do you, what do, you do with the guy like Will Ospreay? Yeah. Now, Ospreay, who won the Super Juniors and, and had a standout match with Ricochet that was so controversial, you have a lot of fans saying, wow, this guy's incredible, this guy is, is the future of the sport, and you have guys like Vader, and Vader's not alone. He's not just a, a cranky old man on this who come out and say, that's all just flippy crap, and it's, it's gymnastics, and it's over-choreographed, and it looks silly. Uh, there's a lot of people who feel that way. I feel that way. I do, too. I actually, I, I watched that match for the first time um, the other night after uh, our 500 meeting, just so I have a better... And, and I'd heard a lot about it. I hadn't seen it. I sat down for it. i got to tell you, I think I'm I'm more on Vader's side than, say, uh, Dave Meltzer's. Um, and I understand the talk of sort of the, the evolution of, of the sport and, and all that. And what they did, they did very, very well. I mean, you can't right. argue a technique, but I I certainly didn't have any sense at all that I was watching a fight. Um, and, uh, you know, I always think of, of Bret Hart versus Steve Austin, WrestleMania 13, and uh, that match was such a terrific match. I mean, I think a lot of people hold it up as one of the, the great Mania matches of all time. And yep. not nothing yep. fancy in there. You know, at one point, I think uh, uh, Austin hits him with a, a a cup of soda. Uh, but, you know, you might do that in a fight, and, and it felt very much like a fight. And again, this this is just, you know, and, and I think it's it's been um, uh, happening more and more over the years, but I saw that, and to me, it really did feel like, wow, how far removed are we from anything, you know, uh, supposed to, to, to 
simulate a fight yeah. or violence. It's just it was so a dance. So if we change the criteria to work rate, well, my interpretation of work rate and yours can be different than yes. Dave Meltzer's or anybody. Everyone's got a different focus, and, and, and that's just as subjective, really, as, as you know, doing it based on wins and losses and everything else. So there's a lot of factors. I think that it's tougher than ever to pin down as the sport continues to evolve and change. Um, but, I mean, I think that the formula we have works for, you know, as good of a barometer as any. And, and that being basically your, your activity, the, the level of push you have in your home promotion, quality of opposition, one-loss record, championships, and, and basically your, your overall influence. Yeah. And I think that that kind of hybrid um, criteria is really the best way to proceed with something like the 500. One of the things that, that I thought was really interesting, um, you know, we talked about after a certain level, starting to consider guys who you wouldn't think would we'd consider at that. But uh, maybe one of the, the refreshing things about that and one of the benefits of that is I think we were considering some, some top indie names a lot higher than, than I can remember considering them yeah. in recent history. I remember a few years back when um, Johnny Gargano was about the, the, the biggest free agent, biggest name uh, in the indies, um, had some buzz going. Uh, and I I want to say he was in sort of the, the 40 to 50 range, and I think that was the highest. He was probably the highest ranked uh, American independent wrestler. Um, maybe it was somewhere in the, in the mid to late 30s. Yeah, but not higher yeah, than that. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, but not much higher than that. And and suffice to say, not giving giving anything away, there were some some indie names um, who we uh, got to very very high on this list. I mean, certainly higher than any well, time I can remember. And, and some of the, the reasons for that is you look at NXT now, and NXT is really becoming kind of a WWE version of an independent, and they're really putting the spotlight on the independents. So for years, it used to be, you know, if you're an independent wrestler, well, you go to WWE developmental, and they, they train that right out of you because they don't want independent. Independent's terrible. It's Bush League. You know, get some proper gear, learn how to run the ropes. You know, this is the WWE style, and everything else doesn't matter. If No matter what else you know, you don't know how to work until you know how to work WWE style. That was kind of the mentality. Now, with the success of Daniel Bryan and, and CM Punk and Kevin Owens and so many other people, all of a sudden it's just, wow, okay, there are some really talented uh, workers on the independents. So all of a sudden you have Triple H that evolved, and you have NXT having independents coming through and, and doing this cruiserweight tournament and everything. All of a sudden the focus is more on the independents than, say, what WWE had tried doing for the past decade or so with goofy things like Tough Enough or whatever. Um, so even WWE is beginning to acknowledge that the independence is the future of wrestling, and that makes the independence much more influential than they've been in previous years, where WWE has always kind of squashed them down. Like, oh yeah, you're just a indie darling. You know, maybe we'll give you a cup of coffee just to, you know, just have Bob Holly come out and squash you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's definitely changed a little bit, and I think that that will probably be uh, heavily reflected in, in the 500 rankings this year. And, and, again, I think that's one of the, the great things about the 500 is that it, it forces you to kind of take a macro look at something that you don't usually, right? I mean, these little changes and, and sort of uh, evolutions happen very gradually that um, you don't notice them when they're happening. but. You know, just a couple things that come to mind. Again, like the indie uh, talent uh, doing really well and being slotted really high uh, this year. Um, UK talent, uh, you know, an, an area that we typically in the past haven't focused too much on, but but guys like Drew Galloway and Will Ospreay and, and some others um, sort of exemplifying uh, how hot that scene is over there. And when I interviewed uh, Drew Galloway for the, the current issue of, of PWI for our, our hot seat interview, uh, he really kind of drove that home, and, and it, it made an impression on me that, you know, essentially, uh, if, if you want, want to liken it to the territory days, the U.K. is, is maybe the hottest territory uh, in the business right now. Um, and I, I think for, for a long time, uh, certainly American fans looked at U.K. fans as just sort of um, starving wrestling fans who will jump at anything that, that resembles, you know, American wrestling, um, you know, SummerSlam would go over there and they'd fill Wembley Stadium just because they're, they're so hungry or even TNA does really well over there. I think that that's less so now and they very much created their own scene uh, independent yeah. of, of uh, American, influenced American wrestlers uh, that's sort of self-contained and doing really well. 
uh, Mexico falling off. I mean, it used to be for, for years you could count on having um, one or two. Even last year, you know, Alberto El Patron made the top ten. Um, you know, it, it's just uh, not a scene that, that uh, feels particularly hot right now. The stars coming out of there, um, you know, you, you almost have a sense of them sort of being de facto the biggest stars in Mexico. Um, I mean, you've got a Ray Mysterio type who, who is a legend, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't feel like the hottest scene uh, uh, in the world right now. Um, what, what are some other kind of takes you had from, from that? Yeah, well, to, to expand on the, the uh, Mexico thing, yeah, it, you have the, the high-flying guys and the, the younger guys work the very even Stephen booking, and, you know, they're in a lot of six-man trios matches and everything else, and it, so it, it, nobody really stands out. And then the headliners, during their 50s and 60s, yeah. and they're, I mean, they're, they're just still hanging on, and, and they're not getting better. I mean, it, it would be like turning into to Raw and watching Barry Lawler every week, you know, against... Uh, I'd say JBL, but JBL is still 20 years younger than a lot of these guys. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, it's really a, a tough uh, scene down there. Um, in terms of other things that I've seen uh, or I'm seeing, uh, you know, definitely the rise of, of Japan. Yeah. I, I don't want to say rise, but uh, there's been much more attention paid to Japan. In a lot of ways, New Japan has become it really established itself beyond all question and all hype as the number two promotion in the world. And you look at these Japanese guys who are, say, undercard, lower mid-card, um, it's like, wow, you really have to consider these guys uh, higher than a lot of their American counterparts because of the level of competition, the, the their, how, how well they're performing at that level. So I think that you're really seeing a lot more. In fact, I, I sat down and, and tried to plot this out a little bit and looked at roughly, okay, how many WWE slash NXT people do I think will make the list? And I came up with a number. Well, you look at the TNA roster, how many people from TNA, how many people with Ring of Honor, or very prominent indies who have worked with Ring of Honor with the top prospects tournament and other things like that. Um, then Lucha Underground, you look at some of the, the Mexican guys who are always perennials, and then New Japan, All Japan, and NOAA, plus the, the Japanese independents. I came up with a number of like 430. Uh, that, that I think are spots that are already accounted for by those promotions, which is way, way higher than it's ever been. And, and that would mean that, I mean, I could theoretically fill out the 500 just by looking at, like, you know, a handful of independents, you know, your top cream of the crop independents uh, and the people who are on the national rosters, and there you go. So I think that this year may be a year where we're seeing a lot more of the 500 as people who are on television in, in one of those capacities, and far fewer of your regional favorites or, you know, uh, lesser-known guys that you wouldn't know other than the 500. I think the, the, the level of uh, competition out there and the volume of wrestlers is going to make this a very, very uh, difficult year to crack the 500. All right, Dan, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time here. Hey, no problem. Let's listen to Kevin Kelly. Yes. How are you, Kevin? Good, man. It's all uh, it's all good here. We're getting ready for Friday. It's going to be a lot of fun. Big weekend in North Carolina, and very excited for Best in the World. Yeah, it looks to be a heck of a show. Main event, uh, Jay Lethal in a rematch against uh, Jay Briscoe. I've got my money on Jay, for what it's worth. I'm sure yeah. I'm not the only I'm not the only one making that bad joke. Uh, nor was I last time they, they wrestled. Uh, but it was fantastic a few months ago, and um, I guess there's every reason to believe it's going to be fantastic uh, this time around. What do you think about that main event? Well, it's a, you know, again, when you when you do a rematch, it's always tough because it's like a movie. You know, the, the sequel is never as good as the original. And the original of Jay Lethal and Jay Briscoe one year ago at Best in the World was, to me, a perfect match. And uh, it was the best championship match that I had ever called um, I just thought that it was it was perfect and there was tons of emotion and uh, physical drama and in the end you know Jay Lethal came out on top so hard pressed to top it uh, and even to equal it but I know both guys are coming in uh, Jay Briscoe's coming in the best shape in his career even though he's been you know it's been a grueling stretch for him uh, just coming back from Japan where they, where he and his brother Mark captured the IWGP heavyweight tag team titles at Dominion and uh, 
lethal came back from a title defense in the UK this weekend. So I think it'll be kind of, that'll be a wash. Uh, both guys are coming in ready to go and fired up to, to make this special. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jay Lethal. You know, at Pro Wrestling Illustrated, we're starting to put together our annual PWI 500. Um, and, you know, we talked last week, kind of put together a draft of a top 10. And suffice to say, Jay Lethal does pretty well. I mean, uh, certainly in the neighborhood of, of one of the highest ranked uh, uh, Ring of Honor wrestlers uh, ever. Where do you kind of rank them in terms of Ring of Honor champions? And that is uh, quite the list when you talk about guys like Brian Danielson and CM Punk and Samoa Joe. I mean, uh, uh, bonafide legends, future legends in the sport. Uh, and Jay Lethal has had just a heck of a run in the last year. Do you think he his name is going to go down with some of those others? I think that now that he's crossed the one-year mark, um, it, it's hard to it's hard to put into words, in my opinion, how great Jay Lethal is. It's almost he's almost been quietly dominant, and like what he showed against AJ Styles at Final Battle, and that signature moment there, and that that big stage, having held the television title for as long as he did simultaneously holding the world title. I'm not one who can compare wrestlers in different eras, even if it's just a few years apart. It's the Michael Jordan, LeBron James comparison. Um, but in terms of what Lethal is doing, now that he's over 365 days as champ, if he's successful now, he's starting to move up in, you know, in any conversation of the all-time greats. And when you look at what he's done in, in comparison to the other current world champions around the world, to me, he's every bit on par with, with Okada. Um, he's certainly, in my opinion, has surpassed uh, what the WWE has done with their champion. And uh, I think that his legacy is, is writing itself before our eyes, uh, and the final chapters are far from going to press. You mentioned WWE and and one thing that's going on now with the talk of the uh, the brand split and NXT uh, really catching fire. Everybody's saying WWE is in uh, all out recruitment mode, and people have wondered what does that mean for for Ring of Honor and a guy like Jay Lethal, who you would think would be uh, high on the list of a WWE scout if he was looking at Ring of Honor talent. Uh, any concern about, again, if WWE does get aggressive, starts really going after guys, what that could mean to Ring of Honor? Well, I think you always have to be aware of, of you know, in any market, uh, market conditions and who your competition is and what they're going to do to acquire, you know, your customer base and how they're going to do it. Um, it, it there is, you know, it, it does not uh, surprise us that, WWE or, or any promotion would be, you know, they would think of it going anywhere else other than Ring of Honor because, in our opinion, we're, we have the best pro wrestlers on the planet. And if you look at, you know, who's on top in, in WWE right now, there's certainly um, a lot of, you know, fibers being woven through, you know, the fabric of uh, the Ring of Honor flag that lead directly to the WWE. So if it's something that we always have to be aware of, but Lethal's under contract for Ring of Honor, and uh, he's very happy here. I, I hope he would continue to stay happy here and would continue to, uh, you know, stay with the company for as long as he wants. But uh, again, there's, man, talent like his, completely undeniable, and certainly will command a high price. When I've talked to uh, Joe Koff over uh, the last several months, we always get into the conversation about where is Ring of Honor in the national landscape? Um, is it number two? Is it number three? Um, I certainly feel it's number two. Uh, it, it's a subject that Joe, I guess, sometimes is a little sort of modest about or just doesn't want to go there, ruffle any feathers, understandably so. Uh, how do you look at it? I mean, the way I look at it, Outside WWE, Ring of Honor is the the only promotion in the United States that is regularly running shows and uh, generating revenue, uh, and and that's the least of it. I mean that that's 
it, it's doing a lot more than just that. But do you see it that way? You know, clearly WWE is is far and away a distant number one. Uh, but after WWE, I mean, do you look at Ring of Honor as the most successful wrestling company in the country? I look at I look at what Ring of Honor has done, and I, and and I kind of side with Joe on this. It's uh, it's basically you know picking your favorite. Uh, you know, a TNA fan. If we're comparing uh, Ring of Honor to TNA, uh, TNA fans might say, "Well, no, TNA is is uh, is the number two, and they can make a compelling argument as to why." Um, the way I look at it, there were. In the peak of the Monday Night Wars, there were, what, 10 million wrestling fans watching, and uh, WWE has surrendered a large number of that audience. Um, is Ring of Honor, is any wrestling promotion, are we doing all that we possibly can to find some of that audience? I, you know, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's still work to be done, and I think that there is... You know, again, if you if you divide up the rest, potential wrestling audience with the percentage of business that WWE is capturing, there is a significant uh, amount left on that pie chart that uh, shows that there's there's business to be won. So I think that there's more opportunity for growth. Uh, I know that the Sinclair Broadcast Group is committed to that growth, and uh, certainly we're trending upward. And and that's you know that is the the most encouraging sign that we're. Uh, we're growing by leaps and bounds and, and in every measurable way, whether it's attendance or television ratings or the amount of uh, money that's being put into our television production now. We used to have, Joe and I joke about it because we used to have one truck that brought everything. And now there's three trucks just for TV stuff. Wow. And, uh, you know, so, so that says to me, okay, so we must be, doing things to add to the value of the product, not to mention our, our partnership, our relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling, and, uh, you know, how that has, has raised our, uh, you know, uh, awareness. And, and, and again, I hear it too, like from casual fans, uh, friends of mine who are not even wrestling fans. And they're like, one, one guy said to me today, one of my buddies said, you know, I've been seeing a lot more about Ring of Honor lately on other websites, like not even wrestling websites. You guys are getting a lot of press. You guys are doing really good. And I was like, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to know that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... You know, then, yeah. then, I, then I offer him tickets, and he's like, nah, I'm okay. I, you know, I, I like to watch it on TV every once in a while. But uh, So he's not, a, he's not a fan fan, but he is seeing more stuff about Ring of Honor. Yeah, I think you touched on it. I mean, whether it's it's WWE or TNA, if, if you were sort of mapping their... Uh, their, their trajectory, it, 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 you know, that line would be going down over the last couple of years. Certainly, WWE's ratings uh, have been falling. Um, there's just a report out in the last week that attendance has dropped off quite a bit in, in the last several months. Obviously, TNA is having the trouble that it's having. Uh, but Ring of Honor, you know, it's a growth. I mean, there have been bumps in the road, losing the Destination America deal, I imagine, um, cost you some viewers. Uh, but it, it clearly, it, it is a a product that seems to be getting bigger and not smaller. Right, right, and 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 again, the first measurement historically of any wrestling promotion is live gate and right. and how many fans are coming through and seeing our live events, and that number uh, that number continues to grow. We uh, we increase attendance uh, every time we return to a market, and uh, it's a uh, but again, there's still room for growth because there's, you know, we're playing in some venues that might hold uh, a, a thousand to two thousand fans. But in the same town, there could be a, an arena or uh, a college that might be able to hold uh, six thousand to ten thousand. So, so we're not there yet, but but everything is pointing in the right direction. Yeah, and there was just the uh, news last week of Final Battle returning to the Hammerstein Ballroom. Uh, which is a building that WWE and TNA have uh, played in. So, you know, it looks like to be a, a, another big coup uh, for sure. Um, uh, on another comparison uh, to WWE, one place that I feel Ring of Honor clearly has uh, WWE beat, well, maybe not everybody, but most of them, is announcing. Um, you know, they've got Marlon Ronaldo and they've got Corey Graves, who I think both do a, a really good job. 
their their main show, their A show, Raw, which used to be a, a part of. Um, I don't think the announcing is very good. Uh, I think that there's something of a consensus uh, about that. What do you make of it? I mean, as an announcer, as a former Raw announcer, as a guy who does this for a living, what's kind of your critique of what you are hearing on Raw, if you're hearing it? Well, I, you know, again, I do follow the product, of course, and, and um, it, it all comes down to producing. It certainly isn't talent level. It, it's in the producing. And uh, the same could be said for... Um, I think what does, where it is personal with me, and the one thing I notice, and, but I can't look into their heart, is how much do they really care about what they're saying and doing? You know, because I know, I live and die with this stuff. I, I know from here, I've never met him, but I, from reading, you know, Morrow's, like he was just covered, just featured today in SI.com, um, a... You know, he seems to be the same type of guy like me. You know, we kind of live and die with this stuff. I don't know if the Raw announcers have that same level of passion or commitment. They certainly have longevity. And, uh, you know, again, they're being led in a certain direction. But at the end of the day, I think it does kind of come down to that combination of the producing, who's, you know, who's putting the, the, the right information into their ear or on the paper in front of them, and then how much do they care about what they're saying. Yeah. What do you make of the uh, importance on appearance? Um, you know, that it, it's long talked about that that was a factor in kind of phasing uh, Jim Ross out, you know, largely considered one of the best, if not the best wrestling play-by-play men in wrestling history, just because he wasn't particularly TV-friendly uh, toward the end. And yet you've got guys like Byron Saxton and um, Corey Graves, who I think is a fine announcer, but other guys are maybe, again, a little more TV-friendly, Kevin, you're a fine-looking man. (laughs) You're not a supermodel, uh, but you're doing a fantastic job in Ring of Honor. So do you think that uh, – how important do you think appearance is for a wrestling announcer? I think it's vastly overrated. Uh, And, again, it was a constant, uh, you know, critique uh, when I was there of me. And, you know, it was something that I always tried to work on. It's always a struggle. Um, And – I think the way, you know, Jim Ross was treated there was, was absolutely shameful. Uh, the, there is no fan that has ever turned off a television show, a wrestling show, a wrestling show, because the announcer wasn't that great looking of a guy. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's much ado about nothing. It has to very much do with the, you know, personal ego that that exists within the wwe and sort of the avarice for wrestling announcers in general yeah do you have good memories i mean i of of your time in wwe i mean it it sounds like uh, i mean you touched on on maybe some hard feelings there do you look back at that time uh fondly or is it kind of a, a negative thing for you no absolutely you know no no hard feelings at all uh it was what it was and I had a lot of great times there. I really did. Uh, it was a struggle because I never quite got to where I wanted to be. And, and again, I, it, it's hard to crack the starting lineup when Jim Ross is ahead of you. Yeah. You know, there, it, it just is. And the, uh, you know, but I was thankful for all the opportunities that I had, all the interaction that I had with The Rock and with Stone Cold Steve Austin and, and you know, memorable moments that we had especially in a lot of backstage interviews. Uh, Absolutely no regrets at all. And, uh, you know, worked there. They wanted to let me go after one year. I wound up staying there seven years. Mm -hmm. So I think I was able to kind of outlast what maybe their plans were for me. And uh, I did a lot of good work. I got a lot of experience. And that's, you know, carried me through, you know, throughout my whole career now. What years were you there? I was there from 96 until 2003. As a matter of fact, it was just, uh, it was 20 years ago. Uh, let's see, the 24th. So, oh, actually, it'll be a couple of days. It'll actually be the same day as Best of the World. What do you know about that? <laughs> How about that? Maybe they'll get you a cake or something. No, no, because cake and wrestling never winds up wearing <laughs> right. it. I'll wind up wearing yes. it. 
foolish me. So, you know, what's interesting about, about those years is that you were there for, for the, the launch, right? I mean, when, when you took about 1996, uh, those were far from kind of the glory days of Monday Night Raw, and a lot of that stuff's on the network, and I watch back on it. I, rem- I remember it fondly, and it was, you know, it was Teal Hopper and, you know, Bob Sparkplug Holly and Who and, and guys like that. Um, and then, you know, it probably started right around mid-97, where it really kind of started catching fires, certainly 98, 99. Um, when do you remember it really feeling like there was something go- going on? This was really a movement. Well, it all, you know, of course, there were bleak times when I started. Uh, it was, they were still trying to find their way out of the new generation era, and not really knowing what was next and having a lot of talent leave and being bought up by Nitro. So it's very competitive. And, uh, you know, Vince Russo was certainly very, very instrumental in helping uh, to shape Vince McMahon's thought process into a new direction. Uh, and, and, you know, when we started seeing emails after a weekend of uh, live events and, you know, so the email would come from the live events team that says, hey, we just had our highest, uh, you know, gross, highest live gate since, uh, you know, 1992 or 91 or 89 or the highest ever. Um, and those became more frequent that, you know, really you could see that the houses were up and the crowds were hot. They were intense. Everybody was really starting to get over. And then by like 99, it was, you know, just quite hot. It was just crazy how hot business was. Yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, I'm in New York, so so through the mid-90s and kind of that really down period, 95, 96, uh, me and my buddy would go to all the garden house shows, and it was a routine for us just to walk up to the window right before the show. You know, maybe you get there 10, 15 minutes early, you buy a couple tickets, you go inside. And I remember it was a show in, uh, I want to say it was like early 98, and I think it was Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin at a house show and we did our usual routine we walked up to the window uh, before the show and it was sold out and that was something that we had never dealt with before you know what do you mean it's sold out you know there's 20,000 seats in here how, how is it sold out and um, for me that was sort of the moment it was like wow you know they just filled this place up yeah and and it was and there was a lot of there was a uh, I think it was like a December 30th show it was that week between christmas and new year's when wwe now frequently runs live events they ran one in memphis and it was like they did like a four hundred fifty thousand dollar house with i think waller and somebody in a tag in the main event and i mean it was all the stars don't get me wrong but it's just like wow it's like a wednesday night in memphis and $400,000, $400,000, almost $500,000 house. That's huge yeah. for non-televised events. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, that was just, it was crazy how, and they were, it was, you know, described by the security. They would say like, it's like a rock concert. You know, <laughs> guys that did security, they also had done like rock shows. They said it's like a, it's like a rock concert crowd. They're yeah. there and they're, everybody's drinking and partying and having a great time. And they're showing up nicely dressed. Uh, it was a little different than, you know, uh, kind of that stereotypical what people believe to be a wrestling crowd. Uh, yeah. It had certainly stepped up in, in uh, demographics. One of my regrets from uh, that mid-90s period is that uh, I didn't go to many uh, live Raws. I went to one in um, the Manhattan Center in 97 but this was already when they had left the manhattan center years ago and then they came back for that one-off where they had the ecw invasion but otherwise my only experience of going to live uh, raws over the last you know 20 years or so are madison uh, madison square garden the barclays center nasa coliseum these major venues and and i look back on some of those old raws on the network that are in these smaller more intimate uh, environments and it's sort of fascinating to me. It's like, wow, I mean, going to Raw in these tiny buildings. You called some of those. How different was Raw when um, they were doing it in front of a thousand fans? I mean, I imagine these were some pretty small buildings, right? Uh, 
Well, that was, yeah, right before I started, they had done uh, a run of shows at, uh, not Foxwood, what was the name of the place? In, uh, Mohegan Sun? House. No, oh, not Coconuts, Mohegan okay, Sun. yeah. In, like Mount Airy or something? Pennsylvania. Yeah. I, I used to live right by there, and I came from Bushkill. And uh, it, it the, anyway, very small venue. Um, like the first live raw I did was in August of 96, the night after SummerSlam, and it was at the Wheeling, uh, you know, Civic Center in Wheeling, West Virginia. And it was pretty full, I guess. I think it was close to sold out or sold out, but it may have been four or 5,000 fans. It's not a huge venue. Um, my memory from that was that it, there was no air conditioning in the building, and it was like 98 <laughs> degrees outside. Uh, so, but, but yeah, the, as it kind of grew up and, and we had to start playing bigger buildings because the Raw's War set came on, obviously that was a huge turning point. And now that, but everybody was so focused on selling tickets and selling the brand and getting the characters over that it was just this pipeline to get all these new guys over. And a lot of it was built, yes, of course, on the strength of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, but it was all the new guys from the Hardys and Edge of Christian and Val Venus, uh, all of these different characters that started to come in uh, that helped fill in the card and gave everybody something that they liked. Great wrestling, great characters, uh, high-flying young athletes in action and paving the way for the main event stars who could go out there and do their stuff and, and, and not have to, you know, kill themselves to get a reaction. So everything just worked perfectly. Yeah. And there is a blueprint. They can follow the blueprint again. It, it, it worked then, it'll work now. Going from WWE in 2003, your, your last year there, where, again, Raw and SmackDown had already moved into these major, major buildings, and you had, you know, WrestleMania and, and Safeco Field in Seattle and in Houston, uh, and then uh, years later transitioning to Ring of Honor, which is back to these small buildings, you know, smaller even than some of the ones in, in WWE you're describing. Um, what, was that, what was that transition like for you? Well, it was very easy for me because um, that was where I came from. I mean, I, I, you know, started in Florida and, and did the Indies down there. So I was very familiar with, you know, smaller venues. So the, the crowds that, that Ring of Honor drew were certainly bigger than what other independent groups were drawing at the time and still continue to be so. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the level of passion and the interaction with the fan base is, I think, what sets uh, Ring of Honor apart, having those metal barricades around the ring and the fans pounding on them and just the intense sound, you know, right around ringside. It's, it's second to none. What was the first uh, Ring of Honor show you attended, either working it or, or just um, in the audience? Well, I went to several of the HD net tapings that they did in Philly. And uh, so that was my first experience. I, when Jim Cornette came back to Ring of Honor after leaving TNA, he and I spoke, and, and they had just started on the HDNet program. And uh, so I was able to uh, talk to Jim and talk, you know, meet Kerry, and they made the decision to have me come in and start calling the, uh, you know, the live events that went on to DVD. And from there, hey, we got plans. We're going to start doing Internet pay-per-views. So then the first, you know, live, live, show that I called was at the uh, the Big Bang in Charlotte, North Carolina. So we'll be back in Concord on uh, Friday. Yeah, yeah. And on uh, pay-per-view, standard pay-per-view, which uh, seems to be something of kind of a, a dying medium, in, at least in, in uh, pro wrestling. WWE actually, uh, obviously has moved mostly to WWE Network, even though they still have some pay-per-view offerings. Um, TNA, you know, maybe it runs a couple pay-per-views a year. So Ring of Honor sort of has that market cornered now. Do you think people have sort of written off pay-per-view as a viable medium uh, too early? Well, the medium has certainly changed. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And we do try to give fans multiple ways to watch if they are completely out of that pay-per-view mindset. Um, you know, you can order it, watch it through Fight TV, that great app. Or if you're a PlayStation, you know, network, uh, you can you can tune it that way. 
So there's several different ways you can see it. And uh, again, trying to serve all the markets possibly uh, is, is very difficult to do, but it, it's part of the challenge of growth. I think that there is, there is still a market there for pay-per-view. If, if there wasn't, we wouldn't be having a, we wouldn't be having multiple pay-per-views a year. Um, if the, if the medium was completely dead, then, then we, they would have probably parted ways with us and said, listen, that's just the patient's dead. We're giving it up. No, there's, there's an audience there and, and they're looking to add more pay-per-views to our schedule. How, how beneficial is it to have those veteran presences, whether it's uh, uh, Roderick or Jay and Mark Briscoe, a few other guys, uh, you know, Christopher Daniels, those types who, who go way back with Ring of Honor. Do you see them taking on that, that role of kind of a locker room leader backstage? Most definitely. Uh, and, and it's not like old-timers day. Uh when, when they, just because they've been around for a long time, they set the tone, uh, not only on what to do and how to do it, when to do it, but how to train, how to come in in shape, how to handle your business, how to be prepared, how to be a professional. Uh, that's their, you know, their lasting uh, memories in terms of, of the company, that, that all of those guys, all the veterans that you mentioned, and Jay Lethal as well, they continue to um, pull guys aside and have conversations very respectfully and just giving back and ways to make everybody better. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. I look forward to uh, the shows uh, this weekend. I'm, a, I'm certainly a fan, and, and I'll be tuning in uh, probably on ROHwrestling.com. Check it out there. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time here. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, that 9 p.m. start time gives everybody a chance to go out to dinner and enjoy a beautiful sunset, hopefully, and then come in and enjoy a, uh, a great night of Ring of Honor. Uh, I know that the Steve Carino-BJ Whitmer match, too, that fight without honor is one I'm not looking forward to calling at all. <laughs> yeah. I wish it wasn't happening. But uh, nevertheless, they will settle it once and for all, and hopefully that'll be the end of that. Uh, I just, I don't I, I, it just bothers me. It's, yeah. I'm very upset by this match because I'm uh, just upset. So, but uh, no, thank you for your time. I appreciate yes. it. And uh, man, let's do this again. This was fun.
Bye-bye.